0: Welcome to Israel from the inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to DanielGordis.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. I'm having the pleasure today of uh, chatting with someone who was doing really extraordinary work, not only in Israel, but in the world beyond, uh, Yotam Politzer, who is the CEO of an extraordinary organization called Israel, about which we're going to hear a great deal. So we're going to get right into it. So first of all, Yotam, thank you very much for spending time with us today. And by the way, by having you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into this work, where you were from, educated, and all of that.
1: Great. So I um, was born and raised in a tiny Moshav in northern Israel. It's called Harashim. It's, uh, people in Israel don't know it. We're famous for being the rainiest place in Israel, which, you know, doesn't mean too much. Uh, not far from Tzfat. Um, my, my father was a social worker and my mom is a school counselor. Um, and uh, yeah, I grew up in, in a sort of a bubble. Uh, beautiful place, beautiful community. Um, and before my... Um, Military service, I did something that again, I don't think enough people out of Israel know about, but it's an amazing phenomenon called Shnachirut, service year, uh, which is this very weird thing of about 10,000 Israelis that every year decide that three years in the army is not enough, and they want to take an extra year to do social work or service. Um, so I did it. Um, it's like a gap year, but um, I did it with a group of uh, amazing people, friends um, and I worked mainly with um, kids from uh, Ethiopia, Ethiopian Ethiopian Jews. And my work there was so inspiring because that's when I kind of developed my passion not only for service, but also for working with uh, people from other cultures and backgrounds. And I sort of developed what I call um, active anthropology, basically, you know, learning from other culture while doing, trying to do important work. Um, and, and this year really changed my life. And then I I, um, I joined the IDF. And in the IDF, I was in the Nachal unit as part of a garin Nachal. You know, in the old days, uh, the garin was the ones who established all the kibbutzim. But um, nowadays, uh, most of the Gari'in, Gari'in Nachal, they, they're doing, um, again, social work. And, and I also came up with a weird idea that, that somehow the IDF accepted and embraced, which was to work with Bedouins uh, in unrecognized villages in the South in, in pretty difficult conditions. So I, I was a combatant for, for almost two years of my service. And then my extra year was another, um, what we call services, but as, as part of the IDF, and I worked with Bedouins. And again, um, that was another amazing experience of, of doing active anthropology. Um, and after my IDF service, like every good Israelis, I, I followed the Humus Trail, uh, and the hummus trail led me to India. And it's called hummus, for those of you who don't know. I'm sure you you know, Danny. But it's called hummus because uh, the local uh, people started to make hummus or uh, create hummus for the Israeli backpackers. Um, so in the case of India, the hummus was not the best hummus I had. It's very curry curryish taste. But um, yeah, I was six months in India. And after six months in India, I found myself in Nepal. And I was uh, um, about to do a, a trek in the Himalaya. And then a good friend of mine who was just released from, uh, you know, the Sayeret Matkal, the commando elite unit. He was with me doing this trek and, and it was a 21 days trek. But I guess this guy felt he was still in the commando. So we did it in nine days. She <laughs> um, literally, you know, got up the top of the mountain and then and jumped down and and, and uh, I wanted to take my time. The reason I'm sharing this part was because um, the day I got off the mountain in Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal, I saw um, a poster, and ad that invited um, Israeli backpackers to volunteer with uh, street children. And I thought, you know, that sounds cool. I'll do it for, for two weeks or something and continue to Thailand or wherever I was going. Um, And and these two weeks turn into three and a half years in Nepal, of all places. I I joined uh, this organization called Tevel Betzedek, which is an amazing organization established by uh, Rabbi Micha Odenheimer that brings together Israelis and Jews to do service and and learning um, about um, the Global South and about Judaism. So I uh, I started as a volunteer, and then I was leading the program there for three and a half years, and I was also partially working for the Israeli embassy there. Helping Israelis who were stuck in treks and and in the Himalayas, and then um, again after three and a half years, I was finally ready to start my life and go back to Israel and 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 get a degree and all that stuff, and I did, and I and I went back to Israel and I signed up for school in Tel Aviv University, but then literally two weeks later, the um, it was March 11, 2011. Uh, which was the day of the tsunami in Japan Um, that killed over 20,000 people and and half a million people lost their homes. And on top of that, you had the nuclear disaster in Fukushima. Uh, And then the person who was uh, running Israel at that time, it was a tiny organization, it was all uh, volunteer-based, offered me to lead a relief mission to Japan because he knew me from Tevel Betzedek. And I said, you know, why not? I always loved sushi. Um, so uh, I, I jumped on a first plane. hummus
0: and then sushi.
1: First hummus and then sushi. Yeah, you go up the scale. What's next?
0: Exactly, it's a food uh, chain of sorts. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, so yeah, so I went to Japan um, again. I was supposed to be there for two weeks, but that these two weeks turned into three years. Again, that was the trend. I forgot to mention in Nepal. Apart from living there for three and a half years, I also learned Nepalese, which is, you know, a very useful language. Uh, and then in Japan, I learned Japanese. Um, in Japan, uh, the project that we did was very interesting. We were, um, uh, you know, the Japanese didn't really need uh, Israelis to support them with in- infrastructure. Uh, you know, they're very good and very efficient, but they, they didn't have any kind of um, trauma counseling and, and mental health support for, you know, people who lost their loved ones, um, et cetera. And, and we started a program from a tiny kindergarten uh, in uh, in Fukushima, where eight children died during the tsunami. Um, and the, the children didn't have any kind of uh, emotional support. Not only the children, the children, their parents, their, their teachers. And we started this program um, that actually continued for almost seven years, not only providing direct relief, but really training teachers and social workers how to help children cope with trauma. Um, so I was personally leading this program for three years. Again, after three years in Japan, I was finally ready to start my life. I was doing my degree online that time, but um, and then and then in twenty fourteen, uh, another disaster in another part of the world: the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And again, I'm not a doctor. I was I was in charge of a team of doctors for Israel, but um, I was sent to Sierra Leone, West Africa. Uh, at the peak of Ebola. And, you know, right now we're still, you know, panicking because of COVID and new variants, et cetera. But uh, for me, every time I want to get some perspective, I'm, I'm remembering the, the Ebola situation. At that point of time, we had about 50% survival rate. So for people who, who contracted the virus. Um, and I went to Sierra Leone and I was actually terrified because you know there was no information and I, I remember the first kind of three days I was there in the only hotel in the country I was um, I, I woke up every night full of sweat which is one of the symptoms of the virus and you know I was I was sure that I got it but I measured my temperature and I felt well not yet <laughs> but uh, but it, it was it was terrifying but what, what was interesting about that the Ebola project was also not a typical relief project because, um, we found out the the biggest um, the biggest uh, problem the biggest challenge was um, infections in the Muslim community. It's a country that seventy percent of the population is Muslim, and and the biggest infections happened during the burial ceremonies, during the, the funerals, basically, um, because in the Muslim tradition um, you have to to purify the body, you have to wash it before burying it, and that was one of the main causes of infection. So. Pretty early, in again, we we realized that was the issue, and and then we realized that we have to work with the religious leaders, with the Muslim imams, um, and and find a religiously, culturally sensitive way to purify the, the bodies. So that's what we did, and and um, together with other organizations, it was on not only Israel but Israel was taking a leading role on that. Uh, we were able to stop the spread of the virus way before the vaccine came. The vaccine only came three years later. So that was uh, you know. Again, all things considered, was a big success because the virus didn't spread uh, beyond West Africa. So I
0: would want to inter- interrupt you for a sec because you've now mentioned Israel aid a couple of times on various things that you were, you know, you were sent by Israel aid to Fukushima and then to to Sierra Leone. Um, now, you actually, of course, run ISRAID now. But before we get to that, just give us an idea about ISRAID. What does it do? How big is it? What's the scope of its operations and so forth?
1: So, so, so when I joined ISRAID, I was employee number two, and it was purely volunteer-based. So the organization was established in 20, 2001. Sorry. So we just celebrated our 20th anniversary. But for the first 10 years, it was purely volunteers. There was not a single staff. The big game changer, I'd say, happened both in Japan after the tsunami, and in Haiti, after the earthquake in 2010. Um, And then we realized that we can't just go for for short relief. We really have to um, stay and work side-by-side with the community for the long-term recovery. So today, 20 years later, um, we have about 250 paid staff. Uh, We operate in 15 countries. Since our establishment in 2001, we operated in 55 countries. The headquarter is in Israel. Um, it's a non-governmental, non-political organization. Um, in our headquarter, we have um, 42 full-time staff and globally, as I said, it's about 250. Most of them are local staff. Most of them are local people that we train uh, and they continue to do the work for years because, again, our goal is to essentially not being needed so we we in a way we use it the, the disasters that are happening all the time unfortunately it will continue to happen seems like with climate and refugees and epidemic and, and 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 you name it we we are using the disasters as opportunity to build back better and to build the capacity of local communities and local uh, leaders um so they can support themselves um so that's more or less uh the kind of the the strategy and and um We're focusing on four main areas that Israel as a country have expertise in. One is public health and medical support. Second is water uh, technology, uh, essentially helping people get access to clean water. Third is education, but mainly early childhood education and also education in emergency context. And fourth is the trauma, the mental health support, which again, unfortunately in Israel, we have a lot of traumas, so we developed a lot of expertise in this field.
0: Wow. So it's unbelievable. And I want to ask you what how it's how it is that Israel is so much at the focus of this in a minute, but I know that you've recently been to Afghanistan or near Afghanistan, and that was obviously a human tragedy that was very much in the center of the world's attention for a while. So I'd love to hear about what Israel was able to do in Afghanistan. And I know from your website as well as from other stuff that you're already in or on the way to. Uh, Kentucky in the aftermath of the hurricane. So those are two very different parts of the world, two very different kinds of uh, tragedy, one entirely human-caused, one basically entirely nature-caused. Um, can you tell us a little bit about both the Afghanistan story and the Kentucky story?
1: Sure. I'll start with Kentucky. Um, the tornado um, tornadoes, there were, there were quite a few of them, um, kind of devastated Kentucky uh, and a few other neighboring states. Um uh, just a few days ago, and um, you know, whenever there's a there's a disaster wherever it is in the world, we usually get a, a disaster alert, and uh, and then our emergency response team is is getting ready to deploy. In the U.S., one may ask, what you know, why would they need our support? Um, but we have been responding to disasters in the U.S. for I think almost ten years now. Uh, including, you know, the recent hurricane in Puerto Rico, the hurricane in Houston, the fires in California, Hurricane Sandy, and, and many more. Um, and what we do, the way we work in the U.S. is interesting. We work with a group of American veterans. It's an amazing organization called Team Rubicon who actually um, invites us to join them. And it's basically Israeli and American veterans working side by side and helping to rebuild home and, and, and manage a big group of volunteers. So usually... They would send about 2,000 uh, American volunteers, veterans, and we would send about 20 Israelis. Um, and we'll work side by side for the next few months to really go home by home and help people get back on their feet. So it's a combination of, of physical work, but also trauma support, um, engineering work, etc. But I think the added value of this work is not just the, the actual physical work, but really when people in Kentucky see that there's a group of Israelis who came to help them, uh, you know they always call us the Israelites, <laughs> um, and um, and 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 it's it's beautiful and inspiring to see. And despite the tragedy, we really see how you know this kind of work could serve serve as a bridge uh, between the Israelis and the American people. Afghanistan is a whole different game. Afghanistan was really, um, you know, probably one of the worst uh, humanitarian tragedies of our time. And, and you're right; it started from kind of a political uh, uh, situation there. Um, so when the Americans pull out in late August, um, we started to receive calls for help from uh, different people and different partners that we knew in Afghanistan. And again, it was surprising. Why would they contact an Israeli organization? You know, We don't have diplomatic relations with Afghanistan. Um, but um, in late August, in one of the days, I got three uh, phone calls. Uh, that kind of changed everything for us.
0: The first yeah, but I just want to ask you a question because you, you raised, how do they know about you? I mean, how do these people in Afghanistan who are dealing with the most critically urgent issues, how do they know about you? Why are they
1: thinking of Israel in the midst of all of this? So I think, I think first of all, they thought about everyone, <laughs> anyone they okay. could, they, they, they called anyone they could think of. Uh, but how do they know about you? So the story was that, I got a phone call from an Israeli-British journalist. Her name is Dana Harman. Um, she, uh, in 2017, she wrote a story for the New York Times about the first Afghan girls' robotics team. She actually lived in Afghanistan for almost a year in these girls' home. And and when when uh, the Taliban took over, they called her, these girls who were a symbol for for women empowerment in the country. They called her and, and asked for help. And she said, "I'm not a." You know, I'm not a rescuer, I'm not an aid organization. So she contacted me and and, and my first reaction to her was really, I don't know what I can do, but, you know, let me look into it. Uh, Because again, we didn't have a team on the ground in Afghanistan. Uh, And then a second phone call I got from um, the Canadian Israeli philanthropist, Sylvan Adams, who um, was very involved in supporting the first Afghan girls cycling team, because he's very much into cycling. And they were also a symbol of kind of women empowerment and were very famous and were targeted for riding their bikes. It's insane, but that's, you know. Um, And then the third phone call was the most actually interesting one because it was from a friend who was European from Afghan descent. And he worked with me um, when we were supporting Syrian refugees in Greece. Uh, Israel, uh, one of our, our, our main operations in the last few years was in uh, supporting the hundreds of thousands of Syrians who arrived the shores of Greece in since 2015. And this guy was I just want to point
0: out you're throwing that as like a kind of as an aside comment. We were just working with Syrian refugees in Greece. It's just, <laughs> I mean, I think most people listening know this, but it's just worth pointing out that Israel and Syria are in a state of war and have been right, since right. 1948.
1: So, right. I, I can, I can, I can share more about well, I think
0: it's fabulous. And I don't think there's anybody listening who would think, why are we possibly helping Syrian refugees? It's a humanitarian issue, obviously. But it's just so extraordinary that you're even working with refugees of a country that, at least in theory, not much they can do about it, but at least in theory, is out to try to destroy us. So,
1: again, I use it Correct. as a throwaway
0: yeah. line. I just want to make sure people kind of, wow, that's kind yeah, of... Yeah, no, no.
1: To, to add to what you're saying, Danny, it's just, it's even more kind of... Um, Uh, surprising because, you know, when these Syrians were reaching the shores of Greece, the first people they saw were these groups of uh, people with a T-shirt called Israel Aid. So, you know, we always joke they probably think they took the wrong boat (laughs) and they probably (laughs) think they ended up in in Tel Aviv or Ashdod or God knows where. Uh, But it was even more interesting because a lot of our team members in Syria for the Syrian refugee crisis were Arab Israelis who speaks their language. Anyway, so that was a very interesting opportunity to, to change people's perspectives and, and build bridges. But going back to Afghanistan, this guy was working with me there, and he told me that um, he had family in Afghanistan, and they are actually able to um, secure safe passage from the Taliban. They had some links. I have no idea how, but they, they, they were able to secure a permit from the Taliban uh, that allows people to cross safely. So, you know, I to where. To cross from where? To cross cross all the way to the border with Tajikistan, the northern border.
0: So to leave Um, Afghanistan and to go into Tajikistan and and therefore leave. Right. Okay.
1: So we arranged a bus of 42 of these girls. They were all covered in burqa, so you can recognize them. And um, they went all the way to the border. The Taliban didn't stop them, surprisingly. Uh, Using these pyramids, they crossed five different checkpoints. And when they reached the border of Tajikistan... We had another problem because you know it was great that we received this permit from the Taliban, but we didn't have a permit from Tajikistan to let them in. So, um, so we had to uh, use a lot of diplomatic channels and, and some of our donors who knew world leaders who knew other people who would call the, the Tajikistan the Tajiki president to convince them to convince him to let them in. Um, long story short, he he agreed. He agreed to, to, to let them in under the condition that they will leave after 24 hours. So then we had another problem because we needed to find another country who will take them after 24 hours. Uh, and that's when a uh, uh, pretty interesting chain of events because we were able to reach the crown prince of um, the Emirates, our new best friends in the region. And, um, and he heard, when he heard it was an Israeli group evacuating Afghan girls, he said, I'll take them immediately. So um, after three days in Tajikistan, um, we, uh, you know, I was there too. We took these girls on a, on a plane that we chartered to, uh, to Abu Dhabi, to the Emirates, which is where they are now. And uh, most of them will probably go, end up going to the U.S. or Canada. But for the time being, they received a great shelter there and great support. So that was the first group that we did. And then based on this, uh, we decided to do another group. Um, and that group uh, was interesting because we had uh, families of Afghan diplomats. We even had the last Jewish person in Afghanistan, the last Jewish woman in Afghanistan and her family. And we were able to evacuate the second group, not to Abu Dhabi, to but to Albania with the support of the Albanian prime minister. In an operation that was very, very dramatic at some point, um, the Taliban didn't want to, to let these the second group pass and we had a kind of a hostage situation and we had to find a way to negotiate with the Taliban and um, using some Qatari sources uh, and, and we even went uh, even further and we had to transfer passports into these countries, uh, into Afghanistan, so they, they could um, get on this evacuation flight. So uh, it was a combination of James Bond and Fauda, and uh, um, thank God everyone is safe. And you know, all these Afghans were pretty shocked to learn that this was conducted by Israelis. They didn't know that once they were still in Afghanistan, because you know we were communicating with them on over WhatsApp, Uh, but we we wanted to keep our identity for almost all of them. Some of them knew, but the majority didn't know that these are Israelis behind this. And again. When when they saw us when they crossed the border, which is where we, we were waiting for them, on the Tajikistan side, um, they were they were pretty shocked. Uh, and now I have I have about fifty Afghans sending me a Shabbat shalom message every Shabbat. So so it was very it's very very interesting. But but the shock was positive. None of them were had a negative reaction. They just really did not expect um, Israelis to be behind this operation.
0: Yeah, the, the, the notion that you're getting all of these Shabbat Shalom messages from, you know, Afghani women who you've evacuated to Abu Dhabi or to Albania, I mean, on one level is, you know, it's charming, um, but it's much deeper than charming. I mean, it really is a much bigger deal than that. Uh, it's obviously fabulous for um, for Israelis and for Israel, for people around the world to have this sense of Israelis. And I know that people in Haiti to this day think of Israel as kind of the, the big, helping angel that swooped in from the sky. And there's all of these babies that were born in, in Haiti that were who were named Israel and so on and so forth. And there's, there's amazing stories that I'm sure you were also involved with. But I wanna turn back to this notion of Afghani women writing Shabbat Shalom to this Israeli guy sitting in Tel Aviv. And um, you know, we'll just note that we're doing this remotely because in this day and age, uh, you're actually in quarantine having just come back into the country. And uh, you know we're all kind of working around everybody's limitations and everybody's restrictions, um, right? Tell me something about the Israeliness of this operation. You're not hiding it, obviously. It's called Israel Aid, so the last thing in the world that you're trying to do is to hide it. But I'm interested more not in the organizational side, but in the in the Israeli side. I mean, you 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 talked about you know you have Israeli veterans working with American veterans. You have these Israelis going around the world. Uh, there's something very Israeli about this project. And I'd love to hear you sort of reflect out loud a little bit about what do you think it is about Israeli society um, that leads to projects such as Isra'id. Um, if you've thought about that directly, if you think about it more, if you think about how it needs to be cultivated, I'm sure you've thought about this a tremendous amount. I'd love to hear what you have to say about it.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, I think, I think um, the the first of all, some would argue that Israelis are, Constantly responding to disasters, <laughs> and and we thrive in chaos, and uh, which I think is true. So so I think the um, the notion about disaster relief and finding quick solution and jumping on a plane, this combination of I would say being very like improvising all the time, uh, being very innovative, but being also very kind of. Taking a risk and jumping out there and going out there is something very, very Israeli about it. Again, I also think that um, you know, thriving in chaos. You know, when when you get to Haiti after an earthquake that killed you know quarter of a million people, you need to you need to find solution. You need to get things done. You need to find local partners. You need to find so so um, not following the protocol. There are protocols, but not following the protocol is something that I think we're very good at. I, I always see how. When we get to um, to a disaster area, you know, there, there are much bigger organizations, right? There, there's the Red Cross and there's the UN and you name it, all these big organizations. And not always, but in many cases, these big organizations are stuck in the airport dealing with customs, dealing with whatever. And we're just go behind them and, and, and get to the area with limited um, equipment. But we immediately connect with like local people, and and we find we find quick solutions together. So I think you know our size is also a big big um, advantage. Also, Israel, I think what we're trying to do at Israel, we really um, uh, see how the incredible technology here could be in many cases used to support the world's most vulnerable communities. Um, so we do see ourselves. You know, as as messenger or sort of the the social wing of the startup nation, if you will. And I hope there will be you know there will be more of that. But I really you know deep down I really think it's it's this kind of Israeli spirit of uh, of jumping out there, going to the places where other people want, taking some risks, and really connecting and really really connecting with 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 local people and with local communities. Um, that's that's how I see. You know, for us, it's always it's funny. I always, when people ask me, we, we work with a lot of doctors, obviously. So mm-hmm. whenever there's a disaster, um, you know, uh, in, in, in the U.S., you, you, you always have a lot of doctors who want to go and volunteers. But they usually, again, I'm not here to criticize the U.S., but usually American doctors will write to me that they really want to volunteer with us, but they have time uh, in 2025 for two and a half days. Um, you know, and, and Israelis, whenever there's a disaster, they'll jump on a plane and they'll text from the plane. They'll text their boss that they're not coming to the shift tomorrow. And they, to somehow or they'll find someone to fill them in. Right. So so this is really the um, it's chutzpah on a whole different scale. And in our case, I think it's it's a good, good thing because it helps save lives.
0: No, that's actually fascinating. And the idea of this, of being able to do something on a dime you know, I'm just thinking about it now because actually we're, we're doing a program here tonight at Shalem College about something that I'm working on. And uh, two people wrote me this morning and said, I got called up to Miloim. And, um, you know, they got called up to Miloim. What are you going to do? They got called up for reserve duty. And everybody in Israel understands when you get called up, you got to go. And um, if you're left holding the bag because you were going to meet with them or you were going to work with them, it's just tough luck. That's how it goes. And perhaps this notion, that, you know, I have two and a half days in 2025. To Israelis, sounds even more ludicrous because you don't, you might have three weeks coming up in Miluim. You'll find about it tomorrow morning or next week or whatever. Right. So I think that's that's real. True. How do Israelis find out about you? I mean, there's um, we know we know for a fact. I mean, that is re- Israel is per capita one of the highest volunteering societies in the world, um, and that's been documented by lots and lots of people. The number of organizations per capita, the number of hours donated per capita. <clears throat> And it's in every community, by the way, it's in the Haredi community flourishes on this basis. The Haredim taking care of brides and of children and of, um, by the way, when COVID was at its peak, the, the death rates of Haredim went down because they started to be treated at home and they were able to galvanize people to take care of people. I mean, it's really an amazing story in its own way. It's a very problematic story, the COVID story in the Haredi community, obviously exceedingly problematic, but the Haredi community is very volunteer oriented. They're called gamachim. Uh, we see it all the way through across the religious spectrum. Uh, we see it across the socioeconomic spectrum. Um, why do you think that is? I mean, what what is it about Israel that has made it so volunteer oriented? Is that also a function of need, or is it also a function of other dimensions of our society?
1: It's a good question. I mean, I th- I think I think it's a combination of of you know the solidarity and and the history and Still, in a way, although we are in a very different situation right now, still, in a way, the survival mode or kind of the sense of urgency, you know, especially when there is a conflict. But even in day to day life, people still feel it very strongly. But I also think there's something um, self, self, selfish in a good way. Um, so it's not just being altruistic. I think we look to connect. We look for community. We look for. I can I can tell you personally, for me, what you know, what drives me in many cases is I love to travel. I love to go out there. I love to 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 go you know to to go above and beyond. I love you know we love the excitement of this. So I found out that through uh, my job, I get to learn so much. I get to meet so uh, so many fascinating people. So. I think it's the sense of purpose and meaning and us not being able to sit down on our butt and just relax. Uh, You know, by the way, it goes the same for for the startup thing, right? For the innovation spirit. I think really what drives uh, Israel is, is lack of satisfaction in many ways. We always look for more. We always look to help more. We always look to do more. We always look to achieve more. We just don't like to just sit and relax. That's not who we are. Yeah, yeah, there's this great line
0: in uh, Saul Bellow's novel, Humboldt's Gift, from I think the 60s. Um, he won both the Pulitzer and the Nobel for that book. So it was obviously some smart people thought it was a very good book. And there's a line in the very early pages of the book where this main character, it said about this main character, Humboldt, that he thought that history was a nightmare and he had come to America to get a good night's rest meaning that what life in America was supposed to provide this formerly Crimean European Jew uh, was a kind of a good night's rest out of history. And what I think you're saying is exactly the opposite, which is to say we never got a good night's rest here. And in fact, Zionism was about the opposite. Zionism was about not getting a good night's rest from history. Zionism was actually returning to history as actors. And I think that there's a way what you're saying really dovetails with this notion that we never got to sit on our butts, as you put it. We never got to sort of, you know, sit on the front porch in our rocking chair with our, you know, our pipe watching the sunrise or the sunset. And that sense of urgency and the sense of community and the sense of being there for one another has really just, I think, even 75, almost 75 years into the story of Israel, it may not manifest itself in the Haganah or the Etzel or the Lehi, or in you know Hadassah buses of doctors and nurses going up through Har Sophim, even though Hadassah still does amazing things. Um, but it manifests itself in all sorts of different kinds of ways, and I think Israel, your organization, is one of the one of the most extraordinary and and profound examples of it. It's really a it's an amazing human story. It's an amazing sort of tactical and responsive story, and it's really an extraordinary representation and reflection of. Of Israel, how do Israelis find out about you, and where does your support internationally come from?
1: So Israelis um, find out about us from uh, a number of sources. We we have great partnerships with um, with both Hebrew University and Tel Aviv University. They have um, good master courses, uh, relatively new. In Tel Aviv University, there's a master's in public health focused on disaster management. So a lot of our staff and volunteers uh, are coming from that field. And in the Hebrew University, they have Glocal, which is um, uh, a master course in in community development. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, and and apart from that, we, we do partner with a lot of the hospitals and institutions. We have great partnership with Sheba Hospital, with Ichilov Hospital, um, and, and, and a few others. So... In, I, I would say in the medical community, in the uh, water engineers community, like in, in kind of the professional community, uh, we we are pretty well known. Uh, we're not as known as we should be in the general uh, Israeli community and society. And I think that's one of our next goals for, for the next couple of years is really to see how, you know, at least at the very least, you know, students from high school or even younger should know about this war, both because they could become future volunteers, but also because it's just a very important they will know about it, because I, I do think we have a role to play in, in, in the Zionist story. Um, Absolutely. So, so and, and again, both in Israel and in the Jewish world, where we're seeing, um, you know, a lot of uh, challenges with, especially with the younger generation and their reaction to Israel. Um, you know, when we come to campuses that are, even in kind of the most progressive places. I personally went to, you know, to Berkeley and Columbia, and and, um, we never had any kind of um, demonstration or anything like that. Usually it's the opposite. Usually the students are lining up, asking how they can get involved. So I do think we also have a role to play on that side. Uh, But the second question, the support is coming from um, many generous people, uh, again, both in the Jewish and in the non-Jewish world, uh, both in the U.S. and in Israel and in a few other countries, Um, surprisingly or not surprisingly, about 40% of our funding comes from um, institutions like the UN, like the World Bank, and they obviously don't fund us because of our Israeli identity. Um, So um, I think it's also kind of a stamp of approval um, that we're recognized by this institution to be kind of a leading professional humanitarian organization.
0: Well, look, I think for those of us who care about Israel and Israel's reputation in the international community, hearing the work that you're doing is extremely, extremely moving. And those of us who look aghast at the headlines of the world, especially as um, regimes become more unstable and as climate change makes the world more unpredictable, knowing that uh, Israelis and Jews are involved in bringing relief and some modicum amount of support in some places and extraordinary amounts of support in other places. Uh, and this is a result of their Israeliness. I think it's just a very profoundly moving moving way of thinking about the world. As you just said a minute ago, uh, Israel is very often on the defense uh, in these stories. When Israel's in the press, it's usually not for good things, um, or at least not perceived as being for good things. And when you're in the press, it's for a phenomenal thing. And it's really about Really, I mean, it's a kiddush Hashem is what, the, is what the, the, the religious value would be, right? The sanctification of God's name to see so many uh, Jews and Israelis going out into the world and really doing what the Jewish tradition is really all about uh, in the name of the Jewish people, in the name of the Jewish state. Uh, it's an extraordinary work that you do. I know how busy you are. I know that you've just gotten back from abroad. So your your, your lineup of things to get done must be even more heavy than it normally is. So we're very, very grateful to you. For taking the time to have this conversation with us, I uh, wish you continued safety and health, and extraordinary success in the next phases of your work with this raid.
1: Thanks so much, Daniel, and and it's been great. And um, you know, it's, uh, would love to do more in the in the near future.
0: You've been listening to Israel from the inside. Go to danielgordis.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time. I'm Daniel Gordas.